It's good to be here. It, it's been a while. It's been about two years. I can't believe it. That's what happens when I don't get invited back. I don't speak. So, but um, anyway, I love you too, Scotty. Hey, um, I, I, I've got a lot to share, but I don't think it's as much as Ben had to share three weeks ago. He went like 40 to 45 minutes. I'm not going to go that long. But I am going to speak fast. I talk a lot faster than he does. So if you please listen fast, we could get through it fast. So um, if I'm being totally honest with you, um, I open up the Bible sometimes and I find myself saying, what in the world is that? I'll read a passage, I'll read a verse, I'll read a story and I'll say, what is that? And I don't mean like I don't understand what it's saying. What I mean is, God, why would you put it there? What is that? It's, it's, it's random. It's, it's bizarre. Why would you do that? Why would the main character do that? What is that? It, it would be kind of like somebody going down to the strip, Las Vegas Boulevard, for the very first time, and you would see things that you probably had never seen before. You'd scratch your head. You'd say, what in the world is that? It, it happened to me recently. Luke is my nine-year-old little jewel. And uh, Luke was in a bad mood. He can get temperamental at times. And so my smoking hot Brazilian wife and I, we thought, let's take him. Yes. You have seen her before. But men, do not take a double look. I will punch you. She is worth taking a double look at, but do not do it. Anyway, we decide, let's take Luke down to the strip and the kids because... They don't love to gamble. What they love to do is they love to go to the M&M world. They love to go to that Coke factory. So we thought, great, let's cheer them up. So we went down there, and I walk out of the MGM. I am there on the sidewalk looking at M&M world, and I realized it had been a long time since I'd been here because I saw some things I'd never seen before. Um, We were approached by a Hello Kitty, like this life-size Hello Kitty. And, of course, Lacey, my three-year-old, was Hello Kitty. It was glorious. And then we saw Bumblebee. And I don't mean like... Bumblebee. I mean like Transformer, you know, Optimus Prime. We saw a life-size bumblebee and the kids were inspired. Luke and Logan, they got excited and that was pretty cool. I remember thinking, it's kind of like Disneyland, you know, you, uh, you, you run into Mickey and Minnie and Buzz and you shake their hand, you get a picture and that's what it's kind of all about. They want you to give them a tip so that you'll take a picture and you'll have like this memento to take home with you. And I thought, wow, Vegas is becoming family friendly, pretty awesome. But things got weird. Things got much weirder. We're walking in the M&M world, and all of a sudden, just to my left, is this 40-year-old Elvis impersonator that comes up to my hip. And he's trying to get people to take a picture. And so I'm beside him. He's talking to this big, tall woman on the other side of me, and he says, hey, baby, I'm beautiful. You're beautiful. Come on over here and get a picture. And she just looked at him and walked away, and I thought, okay, this is awkward. So I slide out of the way. He looks at Logan, who is his same height, and says, hey, little buddy. And Logan's just like, is Elvis and he's my height and he's so we walk into M&M world we come back out and Lacey my little three-year-old starts screaming Pinon Pinon now that used to be her term for Spider-Man Tarina you know it wherever you are Pinon Pinon Spider-Man because she saw Spider-Man down the way and let me tell you my kids are superhero fanatics I pray all the time that they would love Jesus more than superheroes and because Luke and Logan love superheroes Lacey inevitably loves superheroes. It was just recently Luke comes running out of, of his room in a Spider-Man costume and he goes, Spider-Man. And I was like, yeah, baby. And then Logan comes out as Captain America and he throws his shield. Oh, please, please. Micah, I give you Batman attire and Captain America wins. So 
Logan. Uh, <laughs> All right, so, so Logan comes out as Captain America, throws a shield, I'm Captain America, and then Lacey runs out, totally naked, and she stands before me and she says, I'm Woma Woman, which means Wonder Woman. And then she says, she puts her hands on her hips and she says, and this is my Woma Woman costume. See, unfortunately, I've allowed her to watch a cartoon and Wonder Woman doesn't wear much clothes. So she came out as Wonder Woman naked. So now she runs around the house as Woma Woman and it's the cutest thing you ever saw. Okay, but my, they love superheroes. So we come out of M&M World and she sees Spider-Man, Pineapple Pineapple. So I think, well, well, great, let's go over there. Maybe we can get a picture. Well, I start walking over there and I realize Spider-Man is not there to help anybody. Spider-Man could not help anybody. Spider-Man has cigarette burns in his costume. He's got a tear here. He's all soiled up on the front like he'd been lying in the gutter and he had this big pot belly. And, and as Lacey and I get closer, I go, no, no, you are not here to help my child. You're going to do something bad. So I pick her up, put her on my shoulders. We make a beeline for the car. And I remember looking at Bruna and saying, what in the world was that? That was just a whole weird hour. What was that? And if you're honest like I was a moment ago, you would say occasionally you open up the Bible and you read something and you find yourself saying, God, what in the world is that? Why would you put it there? What were they thinking? And that's kind of the story. When I first read the story as a parent, I I read it and go, God, what? Why? But see, the beauty of the Bible is that there's so much underneath the surface that as you read it, you can dig out incredible truth. And it's, it's truth that I think will speak volumes to you as you're just getting off the mountain, you're fired up for Jesus from camp, and you're wondering, how am I supposed to live the rest of the summer, next year, the year that follows? And so the story I want to teach from is actually Genesis 22, which uh, Jordan Smith, I think, spoke briefly on it up at camp, but I'm going to take, I think, a totally different approach. But But like I said, I think there's some truth that you'll love to hear. But before I read you the story, I'm going to give you a little background so you understand what in the world I'm talking about. So listen fast, as I told you a moment ago. Um, The Bible says that Abraham was a man of 75 years old, and God comes to speak to him. And he says, Abraham, if you will follow me, if you will leave your mother, your father, your relatives, your hometown, all that you know, pack your stuff, follow me, I will bless you, and I will... I'll make you a great people. I will give you so many descendants that they will number the sands on the seashore. And Abraham decides, I'm going to make the wise choice. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to give up everything. He gives up everything. He packs his stuff and he begins to follow after God. But he decides, I'm going to get married first. So he marries a woman at 65 by the name of Sarah. So Abraham is 75. He marries Sarah, 65. And as a side note, that ought to give a lot of hope to Mark Overlean. Because... It took Abraham 75 years to finally find somebody who loved him enough to marry him. And so maybe, hey, 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 he deserves it. He has left us for 10 weeks. He's gone up to that camp. I miss him. You tell him I said that. He deserves, he deserves that. He totally deserves that. Okay, Mark's handsome. He's handsome. He's great. He's going to get married soon, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... They leave everything they know. They follow God. The Bible says Abraham packs up his stuff. He grabs his wife. They go to a land by the name of Canaan. They're kind of tent dwellers. They live in tents. And they continue to pursue God. And God continually says, follow me and I'll bless you. I'll give you many descendants. They'll be a blessing. But Abraham and Sarah thinking, I'm 75, I'm 65. We're not really childbearing age. In order to have descendants, we have to have a child. That's probably not going to happen. But God kept saying, trust me, follow me. I will do it. 
and they continue to follow God. They continue to trust God for the most part. They scratch their head on occasion. They look at each other and say, how? Well, finally, after 25 years, God, in fact, gives them a child. Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90. They have a child. And they love this child, Isaac. They dote over him. He is the apple of their eye. They can't get enough of him. This is the promised child, the little treasure that they had been waiting 25 years for. I can kind of relate. I remember I was 15, and I could not wait to get my driver's license at 16. It was that treasure, that driver's license. It was the longest year of my life, but it was, it was the most exciting year of my life. And finally, I got that driver's license, and I held it, and I wiped a tear away, and I, I licked it, and I just, I just I loved it. And that's kind of how Abraham and Sarah felt about their son Isaac. They loved him, the promised child. 25 years, he's finally here. He's the apple of our eye. We can't get enough of him. And so they live life for a while. Isaac gets a little bit older. And then God has the audacity to, to say this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took Isaac... And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took, his, his, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I'm almost done here. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice I'm a parent of kids that I love more than life I read this and God what were you thinking you'd ask me that I would have walked the other way I would have sworn that I heard somebody other than your voice telling me that but as I said, as you, you study this passage, you go a little bit deeper, you realize that there is such incredible, profound truth inside it. And I, I was so thankful that this is the, the story that Scott and I landed on to teach you because I thought, oh God, this is perfect. They're coming back from camp. Please speak to them. I got three principles I want to teach you. Here's the first one. And I think we're going to get them up on screen here. 
God will occasionally ask you to do something radical. God will occasionally ask you to do something radical, like he asked Abraham. Abraham, go offer your son as a sacrifice. Now, I can promise you God's never going to ask you to murder anybody. But God will occasionally ask you to do something radical. But more importantly, God will always ask you to be holy. God will occasionally ask you to do something radical. For example, leave everything you know, and I want you to go serve in a third world country ministering to children. How about this one? You've got a great income, but I want you to live off half of it. God may ask you that, and I want you to, I want you to give the other half away to my kingdom. I knew of a man named R.J. Letourneau who gave 90% of everything he made away, meaning he lived off 10%, because he believed God said, I want you to give 90% away to, to my kingdom. God will occasionally ask you to do something radical. Go here, say this, be this, do this. And when he does, you better say yes, just like Abraham did. But God will always ask you to be holy. Now, what do I mean by holy? I mean set apart. I mean distinct. I mean not, not blending in with the world, not being a part of the in crowd, but set apart for God's purposes. Being holy. Jesus says it this way. He says, I want you to shine like a city on a hill. I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. Now, a city on a hill, people see it. They notice it. They say, oh, wow, it's different. It's distinct. It's set apart. It does not blend in with the cities that are down off the hill. It is uniquely set apart for God's purposes. Same thing with salt. You put salt on food, it's totally different than the food you put it on. It gives it a totally different flavor. It is distinct. It is separate. But it is also, in my humble opinion, glorious. Salt is beautiful. Salt is good. And if you have high blood pressure, eat salt, then go running, and it balances it out. So he says, I want you to be light. So if you go into a dark room and you shine a flashlight, the flat, the light is totally distinct from the dark wall. People notice it. It is separate. It is not blending in. It is wow in your face different. God wants you to be holy. But here's the problem with that. Everything in you and I, at least me, wants to be the opposite of holy. I don't want to be distinct. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be totally separate from the world. I want to be cool. I want to be popular. I want to fit in with the in crowd. Even if it's for noble purposes. God, if you make me popular, if you make me cool, if I fit in with the in crowd, you'll give me a platform there to share the gospel with them. And that's the opinion I had of Christianity when I was a fairly new believer at age 20. I was 20 years old. I was passionate about Jesus. I was reading his word. But I looked around church at all the people. And I said, God, I know what the problem with church is. These are all goobers around here. None of them are cool. The world doesn't want to hear what we have to say because they look at us and they say, what is that? So I thought if we could only be cool, if we could only fit in, if we could only not be distinct, if we could only fit in with a popular crowd, then the world would see us and the world would say, I want to hear what they have to say. There was this guy by the name of John that I went to church with and his theology was right. He loved the Lord, but he just did not fit in. And I didn't like him because of it. I I didn't want him to hang out with me. He didn't fit in with my friends. I remember going to a Bible study with a bunch of men surrounding me, old wise men. And I said, I know what the problem with Christianity is. I said, we're not cool. And I'm going to fix it. I said, we're just not cool. And if we were cool, they would look at us. They would say we were cool. They would want to know what we have to share. Great platform for the gospel. Fit in with the crowds. The crowds will want to hear us. It'll work. What the men should have did across the table was they should have reached over and they should have slapped me. See, I had a very perverted understanding of what a Christian ought to look like. And unfortunately, that's how I lived my life. And so I started making, well, I started rekindling old friendships, people who didn't know Jesus. And I said, hey, 
And that's a good thing. You, you ought to be a light in a dark place. You ought to share the gospel. You ought to love the lost. But I decided, you know what? I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to go to the places they go. I'm going to say the things they say. And as a result, I'm going to be able to preach the gospel to them. They're going to trust me. They're going to like me. God's going to give me a platform. Let me tell you, it didn't work out that well. All they did was pull me down. I didn't even look like a Christian after they had chewed me up and spat me out. And to this day, none of them are Christians. I I know that because I look at my wife's Facebook on occasion and I try to hunt through people and I'm like, darn it, none of them are Jesus followers. All because I thought I needed to be popular and cool and fit in, you know, for noble purposes. God will give me a platform. And And it wasn't... I guess several months later, I started to figure out this Christian thing in the respect that, God, you don't call us to be cool. You call us to be distinct, set apart. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2, 9, peculiar. You call us to be different, set apart for your purposes. And so I began to live that out practically. I've shared this story before, but I love it. It is, uh, so if you've heard it before, bear with me. But a lot of you haven't. I started to understand this principle that God wants us to be holy. And so I went to a business class. It was my senior year at UNLV. And... Uh, it was a large class. It was one of my last classes. And we get into this class, 100 people, and the professor stands up and he has the audacity to say, we're going to go around the room and I want you to all stand up, introduce who you are, and share what your passion and purpose in life is. He said this, and my heart started pounding. I, I know I just heard the Lord. And I said, absolutely not. I will not do that. I want a date so bad. I desperately want a girlfriend. And if I say this... Not a one of these women are going to want anything to do with me. Forget about it. But the Lord kept saying, do it, do it, do it. And I kept saying, they're crazy. This is nuts. So the first person stands up and they say, I want to get my degree. Hi, my name is Sally. I want to get my degree and make a lot of money. Second person stands up. Hi, my name is Dan. I want to get a degree. I want to make a lot of money. And it's my turn and my ears are beat red and I'm sweating. And I stand up and I say, my name is Mike Mead and I'm a Jesus follower. And I, I want to passionately serve him. And I sat down and shook my head. My ears were flaming red. And I thought, you booger-eating moron. (laughs) This is it. You're going to be single like Mark Overling for the rest of your life. (laughs) Never, never. It just ain't happening. That's what you get, Mark, for leaving us for 10 weeks. And, um, And then the next person stands up and they say... My name is Bill, and I want to get a degree. I want to make a lot of money. But then a few people down, this woman stands up. And she says, hi, my name is, I don't, I don't remember her name. She, she says, I'm a Christian too, and I have children, and I want to be a godly mother, and I want to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And I thought, wow, Lord. And after 100 people, there was a handful of people who actually said they loved Jesus and wanted to serve him. And I thought, this, this is incredible, God. Why, why would you do this? I don't know why you did this. But we finally get to this guy by the name of Reggie. He's one of the last people. And Reggie is a, he's a crack up. He's kind of a troublemaker. He's that kid that, wow, he's... He's never going to really make anything out of his life. And so he stands up, he kind of semi-pulls up his shirt. I'm not kidding you. And he's, look at my six-pack and he says, the purpose, my purpose is that women will adore me. I came to college so that all kinds of women would like me. And of course, everybody's just like, for real? They put their head down. The professor's like, are you kidding me? That was Reggie. A year passes and I'm managing a little Wells Fargo bank. And it's our grand opening. It's a college bank. It's a big deal. We've got all these executives from the city in different states there and they're their suits, and they're just looking all handsome. We've got KOMP in the parking lot, rocking it out. We've got uh, Pizza Hut, a lot of college kids. It's a big party. And I'm having a conversation. I remember his name with Jim Howard, my boss. And all of a sudden, it's a very small little place. It's way smaller than this room here. And this dude comes running through the door, crazy loud, saying, Mike Mead, Mike Mead. The whole room gets quiet. And I'm thinking, oh, what is this? These are my bosses. And he comes up, and he says, do you remember me? He says, I'm Reggie. And he says, 
I remember a year ago, you were the guy, Mike Mead, who stood up in class and said that you loved Jesus and wanted to serve him with passion. And he said, I'll never forget this. I thought you were the biggest dork that ever lived. But his trembling, and he says, but God used those words every day since then to hound me. And I haven't been able to get them out of my head. And he says, finally, just recently, I fell to my knees and I received Jesus as my Lord. And I'm emotional. I'm just like, I'm just, I'm getting all jacked up here. He's hugging me and he's screaming, hallelujah, I'm going on a mission trip. I've been bought by the blood. And Jim Howard, this guy in the suits, looking at this guy hugging me and screaming at the top of his lungs. And I'm just like half emotional, but thinking, leave, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) So Reggie ends up leaving. I finally got it. God doesn't want us to blend in. He'll occasionally ask us to do the radical, but he just wants us in our day-to-day life to be holy, set apart for his purposes, not blending in with the world. And I finally did it. And look at what God did through something stupid that I, I, I probably didn't even say it that well. And God was so faithful. And I just remember months to follow just worshiping God that he would save a wretch like Reggie through a wretch like me, all because I decided to be holy and live for him. Don't lose that passion. You just left camp. You're on fire for Jesus. But that needs to be the way of life with you. Don't blend in with the kids this summer. Don't blend in with the the world. Be distinct. Love them with passion. But stand up for Jesus. Be holy, separate for his glory. That's the first point. Here's the second point. God loves you. And he loves you like crazy. And I know a lot of you are rolling your eyes. Mike, I hear this every day. Yeah, you do. You sit under Pastor Scott, so you hear it all the time. You live in America, you hear it all the time. But don't for a minute think that this is not a radical concept, that God loves you. Do you realize that Christianity is the only predominant religion in the world that actually believes in a God who loves them? Hindus don't believe in a God who loves them. Buddhists don't believe in a God who loves them. Muslims don't believe in a God who loves them. Matter of fact, they believe that they got to do everything in their power in order to get to heaven as opposed to what we believe, which is God came down from heaven to take us with him back to heaven. It's a radical concept. Two-thirds of the entire world's population argue with that point. They do not believe in a God who loves them, but I would argue that they would love to believe it. They would love to believe it, and it would radically change their life. But you say, Mike, how do you get God loves me from a story Genesis 22. I mean, if God loves anybody, he loves Isaac. He spared Isaac. He didn't spare me. Uh, He might love Abraham. He spared Abraham from killing his own son. He didn't save me. Listen to this. What God stopped Abraham from doing, he did not stop himself from doing on your behalf 2,000 years later. What God stopped Abraham from doing, he did not stop himself from doing 2,000 years later. I I think a lot of you are understanding this. Let let, let me make it a little more tangible. Let's say for the sake of argument, the year is 2013. And um, there is a a pandemic, an epidemic, just rushing over the globe. It's a terrible illness. And every one of you are going to die within a week. And it's going to be a miserable week, very sickly. And in a week, the entire globe is going to be wiped out. It's an epidemic. You watch movies about it, all that stuff. But here's the deal. For some reason, the Mead family has been spared. I'm not getting it. None of my kids are getting it. My beautiful wife's not getting it. We're okay. Well, doctors and scientists, they begin to kind of think this through. And so they take blood and they realize that Luke, my, let's just say Luke, my oldest, my nine-year-old, has something in his blood that if they can extract it and duplicate it, they can make a serum, they can give it to you and you will all be healed. Now, 
That's kind of great for you. It's great for the world. It's not great for my wife and I and my child. It's his blood. But then they come to us and they say, we just don't need a little bit of Luke's blood. We need all of his blood. Of course, they wouldn't ask Luke. They would have to ask his daddy. We need every ounce of his blood in order to save the world. Now, let me make this clear. There's a whole lot of you in this room that I love a lot. I mean, I can look around at this room. Uh, Scott is my best friend. Little Sarah, Candace, if Bryce and Avery were here, um, Katie Bug, wherever you are, I, I, I knew you as a baby. I held you. I love you. Micah, we're like co-workers, ex-co-workers, photography buddies. I love you. Ben, I love you. There are so many of you in this room that I absolutely adore. You're like my family. Little Hannah Pittman. You're not so little. You were never that little compared to me. But you were younger. We've had $25 hamburgers together. Hannah Pittman, I love you. I love so many of you. But, but, but hear me out. I don't love you as much as I love my son. It's not even close. It's not even on the same plane, the same ball field. You come to me and you say you need my son's blood in order to live. I turn my back and I walk the other way. And if you bring an army to force me to do it, you will see a beast come out of me that you can't possibly fathom. I heard a reference to Hulk. If you think he's a bad dude, you think he's a bad dude, you try, you try to take my son from me. I may be smaller than Micah, but I'll put a fierce beat down on him like he couldn't even fathom. That is how much I love my son. But here's the reality. God looked down on all of you and he said, yes, they all do have a disease and that's, that disease is sin and, and not only are they going to die physically, but even worse, they're going to be separated from me eternally. And he says, and you know what, Mike? I love my son Jesus so much more than you love your son Luke. You lose Luke, you have two other kids. This is my only begotten son. I adore him as much as I can't understand God loves Jesus more than I love Luke. But God looks down on you and he says, I, I love you, Micah. I love you, Ben. I love you, Han. I love you, Katie Bug. I love you, Scott and Candace. I love you desperately. And I love you so much that you can have my son's blood. And not just a little, you can have all of it. And I don't know if you've ever thought this through, but it's so much more than just Jesus going to the cross, which is pretty severe. I don't know why, how, why Jesus had to be tortured, but he did. The Bible says in Isaiah that by his stripes we are healed. Jesus was tortured for you. He had the crown of thorns placed on his head and pressed down and blood ran down his face. He, he was kicked. He was spat on. He was laughed at. He was mocked by the people that he made. Then they laid him over a boulder and they whipped him. But it wasn't a whip. It was scourging. Scourging is way different than being whipped. Whipping would stink. Scourging is deadly. It's a, a scourge, if you don't know, is like a whip. It's got a handle, but instead of one long whip, it's got the cat of nine tails. It's nine whips on it. And in those whips are, are tied metal and bone and glass. And so scourging is they would hit Jesus and they would pull back. And what it would do is it would rip, it would rip skin and muscle out of the body. And oftentimes it would actually rip out ribs rarely did a person even make it to the cross after they were scourged. It just didn't happen. They died. But then Jesus, with his back shredded, had the audacity to pick up his cross and walk up Calvary. And there he was crucified. And he didn't just bleed to death on the cross. No, most scholars believe he died from asphyxiation. He couldn't breathe. Because when you're on the cross, you have to physically lift yourself up in order to get a breath. And you can only do that so many times before you can't lift yourself up anymore and you can't breathe. That's what he did for you. I wouldn't have done it. You need Luke. I kick you. 
I run the other way. Not Jesus. And you know what? Don't ever take it for granted. And for those of you that don't, you don't know the love of God, well, today is the day. Today is the day you experience that. You, you, you receive that. And for those of you that do know the love of God, meditate on it, ponder it, consider it. Think about it all the time. It is the one thing that will get you through life. When a family member dies, God loves me. When, when a relationship of yours dissolves, God loves me. When you have to leave to Texas, God loves me. When parents divorce, God loves me. When I screw up royally from living this holy life, God loves me. It'll get you through everything. That's the second point. Here's the third point. This is a little less intense and more like I'm teaching third graders. The Bible is awesome. The Bible is awesome. The Bible is awesome. Let me explain. I, I, I read this story and I think, God, I'm running the other way. This is crazy. But as I said a moment ago, as you really study, ponder, consider God's word, you start to learn things that you, you just, you can't fathom. They're unbelievable. God's word, every little story you read in the Bible is like this small little piece of this beautiful picture that God is painting. And when you read it, you get a, a little bit more of the picture, a little bit more of the picture, a little bit more of the picture. And sometimes when you read a story, he not only gives you a little piece of the picture, he allows you to see through the picture at the big, beautiful picture that he is painting, which is Christ. This story is about a lot of things. It's about Abraham believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness. It's about Abraham giving up everything because he loves God. But I think primarily this story is about Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of what God would eventually do for us. When you study this passage, you go, God, what beautiful parallels. You are giving us a picture in Abraham and Isaac of exactly the thing you would do for all of us 2,000 years later. Of course, many of the people didn't know that at the time. They're reading this wondering, God, why? But God is foreshadowing. He's showing us a picture of what's to come. And, and, and this is kind of more scholarly than anything, but I want to run through five points that I think will inspire you to read his word because when you read his word, you go, oh, that is unbelievable. Here's the first point. Scott, you already know these, but you're going to appreciate them. Here's the first one. God provides the lamb for Abraham. Did you notice that in the story? Abraham looks up and God, first off, Abraham says God will provide the lamb, but then after God says, do not stab your son, then he looks over and God provided the lamb right there caught in the thickets. Isn't that exactly what God did for us? 2,000 years later, he provided the spotless lamb, not just a lamb caught in thickets, but he, he provided the sinless, spotless, holy lamb of God. John the Baptist, when Jesus is coming down to be baptized in the Jordan River, looks at Jesus and says, there is the spotless lamb of God who's here to take away the sins of the world. Just like God provided the lamb back then in Genesis 22, 2,000 years later, God would provide the spotless lamb for all of us. That's point number one. Point number two, Isaac is forced to carry wood to his own sacrifice. Isn't that crazy? When you read the text, you go, why in the world would Isaac have carried his own wood to his own death? That's exactly what Jesus did 2,000 years later. The Bible says after he was scourged, I just spoke of it, he actually picked up the cross and on his shredded back, walked the cross up to Calvary, the wood. Isaac had the wood, Jesus had the wood. Of course, Jesus dropped it. Simon of Cyrene had to come later and pick it up and carry it the rest of the way. But what a beautiful parallel, a foreshadowing of what God was going to do eventually. Here's the third one. The Bible says that Isaac was laid on wood. Pretty simple. But God, why did you put that in there? 
Isaac could have been laid on a lot of different things, but the Bible says he was laid on wood. Well, guess what Jesus was laid on 2,000 years later? Wood. It, it could have been an iron cross. It wasn't. It was wood. Because God was showing us in Genesis 22 exactly what he was going to do 2,000 years later for all of us so that we Gentiles could have life everlasting. Here's number four. The Bible says, Abraham raised his eyes and looked and saw a ram caught in the thorns. Isn't that crazy? Think about it for a moment. Abraham looks over and there is a ram, the Bible says, caught in thorns by his horns. There is a ram, a lamb, caught in thorns by his horns. Well, guess what happened? It wasn't by accident. It was because God is sovereign and he planned it this way. 2,000 years later, Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, was caught in thorns. The crown of thorns was placed on his head and it was pressed down. I had never thought of that. And when I read that, I went, are you kidding me, Lord? They're like identical stories. You're showing exactly what one day you will do for all of us. And here's the last one, and this is the best one. And this ought to give goosebumps on your arms. This just shows that that God is sovereign and that history is the unfolding of his plan. Listen to this. God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac to a place called Mount Moriah. So they go to this hill, Mount Moriah, and he spares his son. You know the story. 2,000 years later, God the Father says, I want my son to go to Mount Moriah. The biblical scholars, archaeologists, all agree that Mount Moriah is the exact same spot as Calvary. The exact spot, a few miles removed from Jerusalem, the exact same spot. If that doesn't blow your mind that God is not only good, but God is sovereign and powerful. The lamb that was slain in Genesis 22 in place of Isaac on Mount Moriah was the exact same spot that Jesus, the spotless lamb, was offered as a sacrifice 2,000 years later to the very foot. Like I said, guys, when I read this story, I think, God, what are you thinking? But as I dive into it, I go, God, without this passage, where would we be? Thank you for your word. And I just want to encourage you guys, you're not going to be able to live this life of holiness. You're not going to understand God's love. If you are not abiding and spending time in God's word, being moved and motivated and inspired and and enlightened by it. My three main points. If you want this fire to continue now that you're off camp, if you want it to just burn in you so that you are radically different, First point, God will occasionally ask you to do the radical, but he will always ask you to be holy. Second point, God loves you desperately. And third point, the Bible is awesome, so read it. I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm just going to pray over you guys and ask God, his spirit, to work in your heart and make the rest of the summer as radical and wonderful as, it, as I think it's been so far. Um, Father God, uh, thank you for, Lord, the story, Genesis 22. Um, Thank you that you have the ability, Lord, to, Lord, get us past what's on the surface, past the what in the world is that, Lord, down deeper so that we can really see what you're doing in an incredible passage of scripture like 22, Father, Genesis 22. Lord, I, I ask that everybody here, all these students understand, Lord, your desire that they be holy, that they not conform to the image of the world, but conform to you, Lord, set apart for your purposes, Lord, not ashamed of the gospel, as the song was earlier, Father, not consumed with blending in, 
fitting in, being popular, being cool, Lord, but radically, radically set apart for your purposes. Lord, thank you that you love us. Lord, if it were up to me, nobody would go to heaven because I would never give my son, Lord, for people. But you gave your only begotten son, Lord, who is a treasure way beyond even what my little Luke and Logan and Lacey are. And I praise you for that. Lord, and I thank you for your word that as we read it, we are motivated, Lord, to love you more, to live holy. Father, it's a radical life changer. And I pray, Lord, that in every heart here, you, Lord, you convict. There's a quiet time during the day where they set it apart, Lord, and give you the glory by reading the word. Father, if there is somebody in here who doesn't experience your love yet, Lord, please do that. May they meet with a leader, Lord, just in a few moments and ask, Lord, how do I become a Christian? Help me to understand God's love for me and how I can wrap my mind and my heart around it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.